Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm delighted to welcome to the program today President Michael Sorrell, Paul Quinn College in Dallas, Texas. And uh, Michael, it's so good to have you with us. Oh, it's great to be here. It's always a pleasure to be in your company. Thank you very much. All right, now we're going to give you the full um, the full introduction here. You uh, were voted by Fortune Magazine in 2018, one of the world's greatest leaders. That's a pretty big honor. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yeah. I tell you, it, uh, it is not translated into getting me out of any chores around the house. Uh, All right. <laughs> it is, All right. It's nice. Very, very good. All right. Well, Paul Quinn College, let's just give a little uh, quick background. Uh, Paul Quinn College is a, a school that started um, during the period of Reconstruction, I guess, uh, in Austin, Texas. The uh, ministers of the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, uh, and they started that school. It is a historically black uh, college and university in that uh, uh, genre, uh, and moved to Dallas what year? 1990. 1990, succeeding Bishop College in the current location. That's exactly right. Yeah. So you have been president there since when? Uh, 2007. So it's been 13 years. Fantastic. And boy, in those 13 years, have there ever been changes? <laughs> My goodness. Uh, well, uh, Paul Quinn has become a real model in so many ways and a great gift to Dallas, uh, maybe especially especially to South Dallas, as not just a place to educate students, but as an engine of revitalization for the entire community. So first of all, let me just say thank you for your leadership and congratulations on uh, all you've accomplished. Thank you very much. It really, you know, I'm just, I'm very, very fortunate to be able to do something I love on behalf of people that I love. So I do not take it for granted one second of a day. Not taking anything for granted is actually very much a theme we're all dealing with right now, isn't it? <laughs> this this COVID-19 uh, period of shelter in place and now the state opening up, the county trying not to open up as much, all those sorts of things. This has a tremendous uh, impact on colleges and universities. And last Friday, uh, the Atlantic Magazine published a column uh, by you uh, called, uh, it's titled, Colleges Are Deluding Themselves. That was the headline. And uh, tell us the essence of that op-ed. I have read it several times and uh, appreciate your perspective, but I think it's an important one uh, for a wider audience to get. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, let me thank you for reading it. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't take that for granted when you write things that someone will actually read them. Uh, but it, you know, the, the real point of it is that we as leaders have a moral obligation to the folks who are following us, who we are stewards of. And that starts at taking care of them, right? Their health and their safety. And in the higher education space, and I would argue in the larger space, people are rushing back to reopen, um, are rushing back to claim normal, simply because they are tired of the sacrifices that are being mandated upon them. And, you know, to the point where you see individuals 
really making decisions that are not supported on the basis of facts or science. And, you know, the article, I really just sort of challenge people and say, listen, first of all, excuse me, you have to tell people the truth. You have to say to them, if there's no vaccine and there's no widespread testing, our ability to keep you safe is limited. And there's this great study, excuse me, there's this great study by Cornell University, um, these, these researchers there, that highlights the issue. They, they basically say that on a college campus, it is impossible to prevent the spread of an epidemic because of the way they're constructed. So you're only two to three students away from being in touch with everyone. So now when you think about that, right, like this is a disease that is spread through close human contact. The virus is capable of living outside of a human host for a period of time on metal, on rubber. <laughs> it is it needs certain things that a college campus has an abundance of right, to right. spread. So as you know, my peers have rushed back and said, we're definitely going to reopen. And what they're not saying to people is the reason we're doing this is financial because we are afraid that we cannot afford to remain closed. And listen, I get it. I do. I mean, I'm president of an institution that is not a wealthy institution. Um, but what we have always tried to do is to honor the faith that people have brought to us, right? We have worked very, very hard to fight the fights that people need fighting, to be frank with them, even to the point, I mean, we practice something, you know, we say, look, we choose the harder right over the easier wrong without apparent regard to self-interest. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is that test. Nice so that's what I wrote yeah. about. Um, yeah. And it was pretty interesting to see the response that it's got. Yeah, yeah, okay. So we'll get to the response in just a minute because, uh, so you, you say in the article that the reason these schools are caving in uh, boils down to fear and acquiescence, uh, th those two things. So fear of financial ruin, I suppose, and acquiescence also, to just the desire of people to go back to a normal before they really should do so, right? Yes. Uh, and, and so you're a faith-based institution and you're, you're operating here out of values that are human before uh, they are economic. Okay, Absolutely. so we, we're human beings before we're human doings, things of that nature. So these are the, the kinds of things that are informing you. And yet what we've seen just this week is another faith-based institution, Notre Dame University, announce that they are going back to campus um, pretty much business as usual, August the 10th, I believe. Uh, now they're gonna finish their semester at, at Thanksgiving so that they don't have students going back and forth. But nonetheless, uh, there's a major institution, a faith-based institution, uh, coming back into business, and other schools are doing the same, uh, and yet, um, you have uh, a conviction that you need to hold off until the science and the medicine catches up to uh, to to where we need to be. Yeah. Uh, what sort of reaction have you had from 
some of these schools that are making a different decision to the article you wrote? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, I'm not going to be invited to give the commencement address at Notre Dame anytime soon, right? (laughs) (laughs) There will be no honorary degree for me from there, okay? But um, listen, I, uh, I understand Catholic culture. Um, my father was Catholic. I went to Catholic schools from fifth through 12th grade. Right? I, I am a proud graduate of a Jesuit high school. And I understand some things about the Catholic faith, right, that have never been, that I've always had reason to question a little bit. Right? I, I am not Catholic, all right? But there's an element of taking things um, that the church puts forward with a sort of trust. Um, I, I remember very clearly being in fifth or sixth grade, I guess it was fifth grade. And, you know, we were talking about the Pope being infallible. And, you know, my question was, well, but the Pope was born, right? The Pope has a mother and father, right? How is the Pope infallible? And I'm not infallible, right? Like, right. I mean, it, which, you know, I'm not making fun of that. My point is there's just certain things that, you know, and sure. every, every religion has that, right? Like there's certain things we take on faith. Um, But here's the thing. My question that I would ask the folks at Notre Dame that they would have to answer in the quiet of their own time is if football was played in the spring, would they be rushing back to school? Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. There we go. There we go. Let us understand Notre Dame football. Notre Dame football is sacred. Yeah. The idea to people that you would forego that revenue stream, that -hmm. you would forego that significant aspect of your culture. Right. The question, the second question I would ask is how exactly are we going to play football given the nature of this virus? How exactly are you going to maintain crowds? How how exactly, and, and by the way, I give no one a pat on the back for canceling Christmas, I mean, classes at Thanksgiving. We stopped holding classes after Thanksgiving years ago. It wasn't because (laughs) of the virus. It was because students couldn't afford to travel back and forth. And we didn't want to make people feel as exiles on their college campus. And so um, I I just think that, you know, we justify things that... Um, we, we, let me put it differently. We use facts as we like to interpret them to justify the decisions that are important to us to make. Right. Right. Well, your own faith, not a Catholic faith, but nonetheless, a a faith that, um, uh, that is personal and practiced and real, uh, leads you to different conclusions in, in leadership. Uh, but those conclusions uh, are are not just about valuing students generally. They're also about how you how you build them into the institution. So the motto of your school is "We over me," for right. instance, right? Sure. So so at the at the very beginning of this, when you just begin to scratch the surface of Paul Quinn, what you find is something countercultural. That is, you know, in a culture that values radical individualism. Uh, you are saying the community comes first. Yes. Uh, that uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in a place that values personal achievement, what you're saying is loving and caring for your neighbor 
is the, the first line of, of business for the people that come to this school. So how do you, uh, how do you talk to prospective students and their families about what role faith plays in the values and the uh, ethos of your school versus others? Sure. Well, what's interesting to, to us is that we don't ever sell people on Christianity, right? right? We sell people on this idea that we have a responsibility to each other. <clears throat> that, you know, we over me is our ethos. We have the four L's of Quinite leadership. Lead places better than you found them. Live a life that matters. Lead from wherever you are. Love something greater than yourself. Now, look, you don't have to have sat in the church pews on 10 years of Sundays to understand that we are a deeply faith-based institution, right? Right, right. That, like, we... we we believe these things. And what we tell families is this might not be for you. Okay. If you are, if you are not open to the possibility that service and loving each other and putting each other to the forefront, that that's uncomfortable for you. If you can't do that, that's okay. There are all these other schools for you to attend. Okay. But for us, we are laser focused on teaching people the value of doing for others, the value of, of just making a sacrifice. And what I like to point out to people who are wedded to their own selfishness and to their own, you know, self-aggrandizement is that, you know, I tell them, it's like, look, I am, if not the most decorated college president in the country, I'm certainly one of the top 10. Okay, and all of those individual accolades came from putting other people first. There was <laughs> nothing that I've done that's right, right. me, 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 I, I, I. This right. whole thing, like, I don't even, like, you know, my wife teases me because she said, if you ever want to see my husband become tongue-tied, make him talk about himself. <laughs> she said, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost uncomfortable to watch. <laughs> sure. Yeah, very good. Well, you've been able to make this decision uh, about how you're going to proceed with campus life and uh, remaining online, um, partly because you've all already prepared for an eventuality like this. So the, 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 the argument you make in, in your uh, op-ed piece is that it's time for us to use this to rethink the entire higher educational model, right? Yeah. And and you have a, uh, you are one of uh, nine U.S. work colleges, right? Uh, that changes the understanding of how students finance an education. So let's talk a little bit about what a work college is. Uh, the only black, historically black college that qualifies in this category and, and at the end of this process, uh, your goal is that no student have more than $10,000 worth of debt with a degree in hand. Yes. Yes. So we, um, we think that higher education needs a reboot. Okay. And it needs a reboot because effectively we are preparing students for a society that no longer exists. And 
that that to us is problematic. We, in all fairness, we don't think any problem is ever permanently solved, right? We think because of the pace of change, the way that things are evolving, you have to accept the fact that you're going to do the best you can do for today. Right. But let's equip you with the tools for you to be able to continue to thrive in a different environment. So first thing we did was we said, well, we were going to build a school from scratch. What do we think would be important? And we thought experiential learning is important. Giving people an opportunity to develop a skill set that they would not normally get. We said, well, what's also important? Well, holding down the cost of attendance is really, really important. And so we need to be able to give people more for less. It's all right. How do we do that? Well, we're going to have to incorporate students into the day-to-day activities of the institution. All right. The work college allows us to do that. Now we're the, we created a brand new model of the work college with the urban work college where students work off campus as well, because, you know, in America, something like 75% of our students work more than 20 hours per week. And most of that work occurs off campus. So instead of stressing people out, we said, well, what if we bring all of the work piece of this in-house and we find the jobs for the students, help manage the schedule and all of that so people have the ability to, to reclaim a little bit of their lives back. Um, we cut tuition and fees by $10,000 so that we could try and help people you know, not go into lifelong debt because 80 to 85% of our students are Pell Grant eligible. So they were borrowing that money, okay? Or their parents were borrowing the money or their grandparents were borrowing the money. So you were looking at generations of families going into debt in the pursuit of this college education. So we said, all right, we cut the price. We alleviate the need for that to happen. But what if we gave people more value for their educational dollar? And so what we do now is you come to Paul Quinn and it's, we cut tuition fees again this year down to 12,000 um, in anticipation that we're probably gonna have to go to school online, right? And it didn't make sense charging people the same thing that we would have charged them if they were on campus. So and you refunded money as well this semester. Absolutely, we did, you know? Um, and because that's the right thing to do. You know, now there's some people like, well, it would have been nice if you'd just given us the cash. And we're like, <laughs> well, I hear you, but if you're gonna come back to school, how about we just give you a scholarship we gave the senior graduating seniors back money, but we said, look, take the scholarship, right? Because otherwise you were going to have to borrow this money. So right. why don't we keep you from having to do that? Um, but you get your subject matter education at Paul Quinn. You get what you major in. Then you get your experiential learning. If you're there for four years, you get four years of experiential learning through the work program. And starting in the fall, every year you pick up a credential like a, a digital credential that you can use that allows you to be competitive in the workplace. You can start with a Microsoft Office certificate. You can learn how to code, um, you know, and everything in between. Fantastic. So that that way, if you look up and you say, you know what, because I was a government major, mm-hmm. right? Um, if I decided, well, I, you know, I don't want to be a government major. I don't want to do what government majors do. I don't want to practice law. Uh, then, I did internships, but many of my internships were in, you know, business, were uh, sales and trade or investment banking stuff. Well, I don't want to do that. So 
I would have the credentials and the certificates to come along to give me another option, which we think is important. Fantastic. All right. Now you mentioned seniors. So Friday, you published this piece in the Atlantic. Saturday. Now Saturday was a day. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about Saturday. I want to know how it all came to be. I want to know what your role in what, cause you had a role in this, you had a part. And what we're talking about is, uh, this, uh, HBCU commencement that was a nationwide commencement service essentially. And president Barack Obama, I love calling him president still. I'm sorry. I can't help myself. I'm with there's, you. A certain, there's a certain whim, whimsical longing, uh, that, that Saturday really represented to me. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be political here, but it you're, is you're not it. by yourself. Okay. okay. <laughs> anyway. So, you know, here I mean, I'm imagining Paul Quinn college and commencement ceremony being one of the really big events in your annual calendar, probably because uh, I'm going to guess that many of your students are first generation graduates from college. And so this is a huge achievement. This is not necessarily expected. They don't, they're going to be denied this opportunity. So this is true for all the historically black colleges and universities. Uh, who decide to get together and have one big commencement. So how did all that happen? So it's just so funny. Um, you know, I was literally sitting at the desk that I'm sitting at right now talking to you. And it was a Saturday morning. And I, you know, the Dallas Morning News, Sharon Grigsby had written this great mm -hmm. article about, you know, the school and about what we were, you know, having to deal with having to send the students home and the pain of students missing commencement. And one of my seniors, Jennifer Fletcher, um, had talked about how brokenhearted she was. And then we had another student um, who effectively my wife and I have adopted and she was talking about how devastated she was. And, you know, originally I was sort of like, listen, guys, you're still getting your degree. You're going to get an opportunity to walk. It'll just be next year. And none of that was making them feel any better. <laughs> okay. You know, I, I needed, I could have used some coaching on my delivery, I guess, on that one. <laughs> and so I'm sitting here at, it was literally, it was like 9, 9 a.m. on a Saturday morning, and I'm sitting here at my desk. And I'm just looking out the window, you know, I'm doing now. And it occurred to me, I was like, you know what? We can't be the only school where students are feeling this way. And I said, what if we have a national commencement celebration for all the HBCUs and we give everyone a chance to have a community experience? And I, you know, I called my wife into the room. I said, hey, I've got this idea. And, you know, she's looking at me and she says, huh. She said, well, well how'd you come up with it? I was like, I don't know. I was like, I literally just, like, I came up with it. And she's like, is this how you, I was like, yeah, I'm telling you. Like, it just, <laughs> right? It's so a I, God thing. Yeah. It, it, it is clearly a God thing, right? Like, I, I tell people all the time, look, we are so far past my natural abilities at this point. <laughs> okay. Right? So um, I call up some friends of mine and I say, hey, I have this idea. What do you think? Would you be supportive of it? So 
One of them was the son deducted, who's from the DFW area. She's the president of J.P. Morgan Chase's Consumer Banking Division. And I call a good friend of mine, Oris Stewart, who's part of the executive team at the National Basketball Association. I call some other HBCU sector leaders. And everyone's like, this is a cool idea. And, you know, once J.P. Morgan Chase and once the NBA signed on to it, we just took off. And in five or six weeks, we put all of that together and had over, we had 78 institutions participate, over 27,000 graduates, and about a million and a half people have watched the, the ceremony. It, I, like, it, I mean, it <laughs> exceeded my wildest dreams. Right, right. It was just, I was incredibly humbled by it. And, and uh, President Obama, how, how did he come about uh, as being a part of that? You know, I will tell you, I always sort of hoped that we could get him. Yeah. That, like when I thought about, since, you know, who would be the perfect speaker for this moment? Right. You know, he was the perfect speaker for that moment. And so we had several entrees to him. Um, You know, I have some relationships through Ron Kirk and some others, um, but what got us was there was a gentleman at J.P. Morgan Chase who was good friends with their comms person, the Obama's communications person. And he pitched it to the comms person who took it to the president and the president said yes. And, you know, I didn't know whether we were going to get, you know, sort of like that two minute, hey, great job, you all the fun. Yeah. No, he gave a commencement address. Right, right. And I was sitting there just like wow right <laughs> it was incredible yeah it, it even more so than the high school uh, one that he did right you know so uh, which he did that evening as well uh, which was beautiful but uh, well that's fantastic well uh, we really uh, we were really proud of you and of that effort and we always are uh, michael here in dallas those of us who are awake enough to know what's happening in the whole city uh, know what an influence you are and what uh, a, a force for good. And, and we're just um, uh, grateful and in, in your corner. And I want to talk a little more about all of this in the second episode. Well, thank you. So, Michael, you are the president of a school that started in 1872? Two. 1872. That's just a few years after the Civil War. Uh, it, it started at a time when during Reconstruction, uh, the country was being reconstructed. That is to say, um, black people had been worshiping in white churches, generally in the balcony, right? right. And uh, there was a kind of uh, social accommodation where people sort of understood how they were going to be together. But after the Civil War, uh, white churches basically said, all right, if we can't if we can't own you, we're going to separate from you. If you're going to be equal, fine, but we're going to be separate. And so uh, here's a church, and all these churches began, right? And uh, we, we have the legacy of white churches and black churches that uh, is with us till today. Uh, but part of that was then, okay, well, what about higher education? And so the, uh, the birth of the historically black colleges and universities, the HBCUs, uh, began during that period. And there are how many of those schools now in America today, Pat? 
103. And I think an awful lot of people might say, you know, well, it's been more than 100 years, for heaven's sake. Uh, don't we have a, a time when uh, there, it's, there, there's no longer uh, racial separation and uh, there's opportunity at uh, state universities and other private schools? Why perpetuate a historically black college or university? And I think there are a lot of good answers to that, but I think it would be great to hear yours. What, what would you say about that? Sure. Well, here, here's the thing that I would say. Um, there are, slavery existed for 400 years, and we haven't yet had a country where we've existed half as long without slavery. I mean, when you think about it, that's, that's pretty generous, actually, to be honest with you. I right. mean, when you when you think about it, we, you know, 18, what, 65 is the end of the war. And uh, we have a brief period of reconstruction. And then we move into a period of, of uh, separate but equal and uh, Jim Crow laws and uh, all the kinds of ways that one thing after another, we can outline all of this. Uh, that includes things like uh, voter suppression and poll taxes and 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 uh, unequal schools uh, in the name of equality. And then uh, uh, we have the war on drugs and mass incarceration. And we just it's just an extraordinary history of every time we think there's a chance for equality, there's another innovation of how to maintain this inequality. Right. And and look. Let's be very, very clear. Um, we have not been a country that has been welcoming to the idea of equality, mm. right? At, at, at every step of the way. I mean, we don't want to invite anyone to the table, right? Women got to the table begrudgingly. Um, we can look at what's going on now with immigration. We can, we can look at all of this. I mean. The, the piece that I don't understand about our country is we were founded on these extraordinary set of principles and documents, and we don't want to fully live up to them, right? Like, I mean, we just, we embrace them for the convenience of, of, of our preconceived notions. And what I've never been able to understand is why we claim an abundance and yet embrace scarcity, right? Because if you mm, look oh, the there behave, you go, there you go. You look at the way we behave is with a scarcity mentality. You right. can't sit at my table because if you sit at my table, I won't have as much. Right. And listen, I, and then the other piece of it is, we wrap all of that around Christian principles, right? Or faith-based principles. And I have yet to find anywhere in the Bible where it says you should be a jerk, right? You should be selfish. You should be mean. Like, that's just not there, okay? It is not there. And so what, what is there, well, not in the Bible, but what is part of our principles is this accommodation to evil. Right, oh. where we have been willing to co-sign 
destructive, negative, hateful behavior in exchange for our water not being troubled. And that, that to me betrays everything that we could possibly be as a country. And so when you look at why we wound up needing historically black colleges in the first place, right? So slavery existed, okay? I mean, I know we try and write stuff out of history books, all right? (laughs) People were not workers, okay? They were not indentured servants. They, we were enslaved. We were brought here. It was horrible. Um, and, and, and we just have to own that, right? That is part of our collective experience in this country, all right? Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, the person I have lunch with today whose ancestors might have owned slaves doesn't mean that that person's an evil person, okay? But we all have some people in our family trees that did some stuff we would have preferred that they not do. None of our folks were angels, okay? You know, I saw this great saying once, that quote, said, all the saints and all the sinners are never on the same side forever, right? And we just have, like, we have to make peace with these things. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the fact is that this happened. And because it happened, because slaves weren't allowed to read, they weren't allowed to write, they weren't allowed to own land, they weren't allowed to build wealth, they are freed. And then you have millions of people who are just basically said, all right, you're free. Good luck. And 40 acres and a mule did not happen. That did not happen, right? There were no 40 acres, there were no mules. And by the way, those people who did get 40 acres, were sharecroppers and they were cheated out of their land. Okay, so it, nothing worked. Okay, nothing worked. And so you get these institutions that are given the impossible task of uplifting a race. Okay, uplifting a race without adequate funding, uplifting a race without adequate instruction, uplifting a race for people who couldn't afford to pay to go to school, right? I mean, it was a recipe for disaster. Yet and still, here we are, right? We are, Paul Quinn College is 148 years old. And at no point in our history have we sat on the banks of billions, right? right? That hasn't been our experience. But what we have always done is kept going. So when people talk about how is it possible that you stand up for these principles, that you live up to these values. Because, you know, candidly, sometimes those values are all we've ever had, right? Mm -hmm. And so you hold on to the things which have sustained you. But I will tell you, the miracle to me um, about this country, looking at where we are now, looking at where we've been, is I'm shocked that we ever succeeded in getting rid of slavery. Right? Given the economic sacrifices that people had to make, Mm -hmm. given, you know, you had to convince people to act against their economic self-interest, because if you use just, I mean, let's just use the current pandemic as an example. We're only asking people to make sacrifices for a couple of months so far. Right, right. I mean. All right, so let's talk about this legacy and what it means for historically black colleges and universities. 
We have, uh, since the Civil War, and before that, of course, we have the, um, the, the legacy of slavery. Today, uh, black Americans have about 10% of the net worth of white Americans. Yeah. And we can say, all right, well, that was then and this is now. You have every opportunity, go to it. But the, the conversation about reparations came up in a big way during the democratic nomination process in the debates. And we heard, I think the whole nation heard for the first time, uh, a, a serious debate about what the whole nation owes yeah. to black Americans and possibly to its institutions like HBCUs. And so there were some proposals made. Uh, what is your take on all of that? Do you have a particular position to advocate for? Sure. So, so here's, here's what's funny. I actually taught a class this semester on reparations. Okay. Right. Um, and I, I teach an elite problem solving class um, each semester and we pick a different topic. And so the spring's topic was design a pathway for reparations to actually succeed and be paid in the current political climate. And, you know, was a little bit unfair to the students because the answer is you can't. Yeah, okay, right. <laughs> right, like you can't because if you somehow manage to get people to vote for it, everyone who voted for it will absolutely lose their jobs. Right. right? Like we've seen that kind of backlash, right? Um, so here's, here's how I look at this. There really is no question that reparations are old. Right? I mean, like we can, we can dress it up, we can fight about it, we can do lots of things, but they're really, really, really at the end of the day, an egregious harm was done. It was done because at the time that it existed, laws that were unfair, were truly immoral, were in place. It's part of the reason why also I, I don't have any fear of standing up to conventional status quo wisdom, because I know there are times where the, there's the tyranny of the majority. Right. right? right. Um, and so when you, when you look at this, this, this happened, okay? History, historically speaking, when things like this have happened to every other group, reparations in some way, shape, or form have been paid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The only group that has not been paid to has been the folks who, by the way, arguably had the worst lot. So 400 and, years. And let's also say the only group of people in an immigrant nation who, who were brought here against their will did right. not come That's right. by their own choice. That's right. So, yeah. That's right. All right. Well, we could, we could talk through that in great detail. I, I think um, – that's a, that's a whole episode for us probably. Uh, but if, you know, fr from my point of view, you can just go to almost any aspect of the notion of repentance in the Bible. And it is not enough simply to say, I'm sorry, or to feel sorry. It is about making things right. 
So justice, Walter Brueggemann said, is figuring out what belongs to whom and giving it back. And, uh, you know, Zacchaeus was famous uh, for being the one who, when he was converted, so to speak, uh, he, he said, okay, I've cheated all these people. I'm going to pay back four times what I owe them, right? So, uh, you know, I think uh, there, there's a model for us, even in, in a biblical sense. Um, but going forward, you, you have figured out uh, a, an economic model at Paul Quinn that we talked about in our last episode, it being an urban work college, the only one in America, uh, the only black uh, college that is a work college, uh, where all, all students are working and finding, making their way through and, uh, and, and graduating with very little debt. Uh, but you also made a really significant decision back in 2015 uh, to do something that really changed, again, the ethos of the school in that historically black colleges and universities have had a lot of school spirit across time with their athletic programs. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you had a big football field there and you decided to tear it up and plant a garden uh, yeah. to, uh, to cancel the football program and build an urban garden. And that was an extraordinary decision. Let's talk about that somehow. Sure, sure. Um... So and it actually is ironic. We terminated the football program in 2007. Okay. Um, All right. And then in 2010, we planted the farm. Oh, yeah. And, okay. and it was... Uh, Man, time flies. <laughs> oh, it, it, it flies. And I tell people, we built a farm without a feasibility study, <laughs> without a real plan. We built the farm on the back of righteous rage. <laughs> I mean, it should never have worked. The idea that a school with no agricultural program, no one on staff that knew anything about farming. In fact, the person who was our original farm director, she got the job because I had mentored her since she was 16. She was the youngest staff member. And I knew that she wouldn't tell me no. Right? So right. when I called, I said, hey. And she said, well, I don't know anything about farming. I just told her to Google it. Right? I mean... And that's how we wound up with the farm, with no tractor really, with no irrigation system, right? And we're so incredibly thankful to you and the church because, you know, you all bought us our first tractor, okay? <laughs> Which, by the way, has made a world of difference, okay? Right. <laughs> Turns right. out automation is your friend on the farm, okay? Oh, that's right. Uh, but it is, um, it, you, again, it goes back to just a simple principle of, of what's right. Yeah. You know, what, what's right? I mean, we could continue to play football or we could address the needs of the community we serve. Well, and let's say a little more about that because you are in what's known as a food desert, right? right. So your community uh, is um, without a um, large grocery store where people can go within several miles of, of where they live. And so they they are left to uh, convenience stores and to um, the high sugar count and carb count of, of the kinds of foods that they can buy and then also the uh, increased price of those, of those fast food goods and, and whatnot. So, so here you are, you're, you're going to plant a garden, have a farm, and produce uh, fresh greens and stuff, uh, vegetables for your community. 
Uh, what an incredible gift. Well, it's, um, you know, when we first decided to create the farm and I went to my board and I said, we're going we're gonna to turn the football field into a farm. And they all looked at me as if I was pretty much crazy. Uh, and I said to him, I was like, this farm is going to be the thing that saves our school. And one of my trustees said, are we going to make that much money farming? And I laughed. I said, no, you can't make that much money farming anything legal on this lot. But what this farm is going to do is it's going to show people who we really are. Right, right. It allows us to reframe the conversation. We're going to turn this around. Instead of being focused on us, we're going to say, we have something of value to contribute. Right. And it's made a world of difference for my students. It's made a world of difference for the community. It is a source of pride. Um, and, and it just, you know, again, it, it speaks to this deep-seated belief that we have that, there's nothing better than to serve. Right. Well, so for, for people like me who live uh, in North Dallas and who uh, have to make a, a decision every time we leave the house to go to a grocery store, uh, which one uh, am I going to pass to get to the next one? Uh, because they're competing with each other within, you know, half a mile of each other. Um, the good news for people like us is that we can come home with a, a, a kind of nutrition plan uh, that uh, enables us to live fairly healthy lives. Uh, but COVID-19 has revealed a great deal of the health inequities uh, between the black and white communities of Dallas as well. Uh, that uh, hypertension that leads to heart disease and uh, that the... Um, the, the diet that leads to diabetes is uh, making, um, when, when an African-American essential worker in this town gets COVID, it is more likely that he or she will die from that than if a, a white person does. So it's a, it, it's a really, nutrition is a really important part of a healthy life and lifestyle. Yeah, it, it is. It's, I mean, listen, the, there is a price that you pay for being poor in America. Mm -hmm. You are robbed of the ability to do simple things simply. Mm -hmm. You are, and, and let me be very clear, people aren't poor because they're lazy, right? I mean, the, the way you have to work when you're poor <laughs> is, I mean, I look at my students and their families and they're willing to work two and three jobs to try and cobble together a living. So these are people who are lazy, but yet we blame them for their circumstances. Right. And I just, I, I don't, I don't know why we do that. I don't know why that makes us feel better about ourselves. Right. Right. Um, it doesn't make us better. It mm -hmm. doesn't make us good people. And so what COVID has done is it's peeled back the curtain, but frankly, I'm not sure that how much more peeling back the curtain needed to be peeled back. I mean, 
Right. right. But it made us pay attention, Michael. You know, well, some. I mean, you can be willfully ignorant, but uh, this is at least raised to the front page above the fold, the fact that we have this kind of inequality of access to health care, of health outcome inequality, of uh, vulnerability to the disease. All of these things are now right in front of us, and we have to be willfully ignorant not to pay attention to it. Well, I mean, and so here's something else that I don't think people realize is how you, what also contributes to your health is your environment. Mm -hmm. So we are, (laughs) this blows my mind. We were, we did a study this spring in one of our classes about the air quality in the city. And it's, it's, it's just, it gets released. I actually think it gets released tomorrow, today or tomorrow. And it shows how effectively in the southern part of the city, the air quality is so poor and it's been legislated to be that way, right? Mm -hmm. So everything that the people in the southern part of the city are experiencing, the law permits it. Right. Right? And so... If you think about it, if every second of your day, or more often than not, you're breathing substandard air, mm-hmm. then you are hungry. And you say, mm-hmm. well, I want to get something to eat. Well, you don't have Eatsies, right. okay? You don't right. have Central Market, so you mm-hmm. go to the convenience store. Money is tight, so you buy what you can afford. So maybe it's at the convenience store, and the Burger King, not that I'm not speaking disparagingly about Burger King. I understand. Using, so, you know, Burger King will have, you can get these two things for $5, right? Well, those two things aren't a salad, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, I mean, and so day after day, year after year, you are breathing poor air. You're eating substandard food. You're dealing with the stressors of everyday life. Stress. Two or three jobs. Two or three jobs. And so then when something like COVID comes along, mm-hmm. which feeds on unhealthy bodies and systems anyway, ravages them, well, of course. It, and, and then mm-hmm. you don't have access to appropriate health care. And then when you do go to the doctor, you might be told just, you know, Take an aspirin and go home. We're not really and you might not have insurance to begin with, more and than likely. You probably don't so. have insurance. So all of this becomes the perfect storm that leads mm-hmm. to the destruction. Well, I, I want to wrap up our time together just um, using the conversation about the tractor as illustrative of the question of how we, as a larger community in Dallas, can be supportive. Uh, so the story of the farm hits uh, Sports Illustrated, right? And a young adult in our church in North Dallas reads this story and is captured by it and tells his parents they have a family foundation and uh, they decide this is the coolest idea. It looks like they're basically using uh, manual labor to get this done. What if? And they had some resources to do that and we were able to connect uh, and, and they donated a a significant tractor that was able to expand your farm uh, pretty quickly, right? 
So uh, that that was one of the really great joys uh, that the day I got to go down with them and uh, meet you and see the tractor in in, in the farm. Uh, so we're we're proud to have been part of that effort at least. Well, we are incredibly appreciative. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things where the real joy is for the students and staff that were down there trying to make this thing work without a tractor. Okay? I know, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they were so happy. I mean, one of them hugged me so hard that you know, <laughs> I, just, I just laughed and said, you know, I, like, I don't know what to do. Well, the, the fun thing for me is when, you know, when they call that, I, 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 knew, I knew you enough and knew how to get to you that when you hang around, for a long enough time and you meet people, it, you can make these connections and, and, and whatnot. So it was, it was fun for me to be able to be uh, just the intermediary go-between for you. But I, I, I really want to make this a larger story, and that is Paul Quinn College is a treasure for this city. And it is obviously a historically black college, and uh, there's a great deal of pride about it being so, and the leadership, the board, uh, being African-American, uh, but surely you need friends everywhere yeah. and uh, supporters and, and whatnot. There are people listening to this program, uh, and, and I'd just like to encourage them uh, to consider uh, that with their charitable dollars and their influence and, and whatnot, that they consider you, uh, Paul Quinn, and uh, the, the not to direct how you're supposed to do what they want you to do with their money, but rather to find out what you're up to and join it. So, well, we we would welcome the opportunity. Um, I think when people take the time to come see what we're doing, they would be really, really impressed with what we're doing and the innovations that we've implemented. Um, and we would welcome an opportunity for them. You know, we can't give personal tours now, but we can give virtual tours. So that's right. Call me, I'll get on FaceTime, and I'll walk you around the campus and tell you the story. Well, you know, I just think a lot of people um, I hear from time to time, uh, they say, you know, okay, racism is what it is. What can I do? Uh, I'm going to change my heart, my attitude, and all that sort of thing. The fact of the matter is you don't have to scratch too deep before you can figure out a way that you can change systems, that you can concretely give back, that you can begin to be part of a solution that is not just about uh, changing the way you think and talk about other people, but actually uh, altering the way we live together and uh, what that future can be. Uh, you're doing that in so many ways, Michael. I thank you for uh, the great example and uh, for our relationship, and I look forward to many good times in the future. Well, I, I look forward to it. I am so, so just honored to be your friend and impressed with the work that you and the church that you all do on a daily basis. And I just think you all are one of the brightest lights we have in the city. So it's an honor to be your friend. Well, that's great. Well, uh, mutual admiration society then. Thanks for being on Good God again and have a great day. You too. You take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into Good God. We're grateful that we get to be able to offer these conversations to you free of charge, and especially now during this time of COVID-19 that is disturbing the peace for all of us. 
We know that there are a lot of people and organizations that need your funding. And so we're grateful to have the funding necessary to be able to present this to you without asking you to support us at this time. Please give generously to your faith communities and also to those nonprofits that are serving to encourage us during these days. God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White, social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2020 by Faith Commons.